This is Hope and Health with Doctors Michelle and Mark Sherwood. Insights and interviews with a dose of straight talk to help you enjoy optimal health in all areas of life. So we are here with a brand new friend of mine. Her name is Rachel Bruno, and I can't wait for you to hear her story. Normally, I give a really good uh, introduction from this person, who it is going to be, but I just want you to hear it from her. This story will absolutely change your life and restore hope, restore the ability to forgive, and really restore the ability to even be restored, the confidence in that itself. And so, Rachel Bruno, welcome to Hope and Health. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Dr. Mark. My pleasure to be here. Well, your story is amazing. And I I just think that in this case with our audience, just tell your story, a little bit of your background and tell people what you've been through, because I know like their jaws are going to hit the floor, like my jaw hit the floor with just this sadness, anger, grief, et cetera. So go ahead and I'll fill in some blanks with some questions that if, if we need to. Awesome. Well, like you said, all that, you know, I've been married for 18 years. I have two sons. They are now eight years old and six years old. But before I had them, my husband and I owned our own business, cybersecurity. I have my MBA from Pepperdine University. So he did the techie side. I did the business side. And I thought I did everything right, right? Have school, finances. Now let's start a family. And something about me, I have seizures. I have epilepsy. I've had them since I was about five years old. And one of the main triggers are sleep deprivation or interrupted sleep. Now, if you have newborns, you know you are not sleeping. So my doctor suggested I get help at least for the night shift so that I can get some sleep. So my first son, grandmas were very happy to help out. Second baby, we're too old for this. (laughs) So they gave me the money to go get a nanny. I'm like, oh my God, you guys are the best, right? Mm -hmm. So I looked for a nanny. I found one that I felt comfortable with. And she started watching my son when he was seven days old. When he was about seven weeks old, I woke up to him just screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. And I figured diaper change, feeding, you know, something to that extent. And he cried, then he stopped, cried again, stopped again. You know, this kept going on for about 20 minutes until I finally got up, walked down the hallway. She had him swaddled inside the crib, was rocking him back and forth, trying to shush him. And he was not having it. And so she picked him up and put him in the burp position. Mm -hmm. And when she did this, he did stop screaming. So I walked in the room. I asked her anything happened. And she showed me the empty bottle. And she said, I just fed him. He's really gassy. But okay, fair enough. Babies get gassy. And at this point, my husband is out of state. I'm home alone with my older son, who was 20 months old at the time, and a seven-week-old screaming baby. So I tell her, you know, he's obviously not settling down. I'm already awake. So why don't you just go home and I'll take it from here. So she left and I unswaddled him looking for rashes, anything leaking, you know, runny nose, anything you could Mm -hmm. think of with a baby with a newborn and couldn't see any physical signs. I took off his clothes, gave him skin to skin and he calmed down and fell asleep. I'm like, okay, you know, you just wanted your mommy. And I must have dozed off at about seven o'clock. I just hear screaming again. I'm like, oh, okay, you're hungry. Mm -hmm. So uh, tried to nurse him and he would not latch. You know, he would not just making these faces and just crying. And I'm jaded, you know, with what she told me. 
So I'm thinking colic, gas, nursing Mm -hmm. strike, like what's wrong with this kid? Six hours later, nonstop crying, would not nurse, would not nap. Like, I don't know what's wrong with him. You know, Dr. Google is telling me it could be all of the above. (laughs) So I call my mom. I'm like, mom, please come here, you know, watch my older son so that I could take the baby to the pediatrician. She comes over. I call the pediatrician. The receptionist says she can't see him till three o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, he's been screaming since four o'clock this morning. He's not eating. I need to see somebody. She's like, okay, then take him to the emergency room. So hop in the car with my mom and with my son. And of course, babies love to sleep in the car. He sleeps in the car, makes no more noise, no more crying. And I'm like, great, you know, overreactive mom going (laughs) to the emergency room. (laughs) But I get there. Doctor tells me to go in the room, tells me to lay him down. And at this point, he's asleep to me, making no sounds, no noises. Doctor lays him down and walks away. And I'm thinking, okay, probably going to give me Benadryl or something. Tell me to go home. And he stops right there at the door, probably about 10 feet away from the bed. And he is just laser focused on my son, like staring at him on that bed. Everything is quiet. He's probably staring there for about a minute. And then he starts walking towards the bed and he goes right to his head, right behind his left ear. And he says, did you feel this? I said, no, no. He makes, grabs my hand, makes me touch it. Like you feel that bulge? Like, yeah. It's like, that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. Mm. Mm. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Like, it could be spinal cerebral fluid. It can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right now and see what's going on. And as soon as he says that, about 10 people rush into that room and they are putting probes on him, tubes on him. I mean, it's complete chaos in that room. And my mom is there with my 20 month old son. You know, I'm just looking at her. We're both in shock. They start pushing that bed down to the CT room, right down the hallway, and his right arm starts twitching. Now, when that happens, oh my gosh, those nurses run. And I look at her, I'm like, is this normal? And she says, no. And then I remember I have seizures, left side of the brain, Mm -hmm. right arm twitching. He's having a seizure. And first thing I thought, oh my God, I gave it to him, right? It's genetic, it's hereditary, Mm -hmm. said a little prayer for him. And God, please spare my son from having to live with this like I did. Goes to the CT room, a few minutes pass, doctors come, this is Bruno, yeah, take me to the back where all the monitors are, said, this is very serious, like, okay, the fluid that's leaking is blood, the brain hates blood, it was a cranial fracture and an intracerebral blood hemorrhage, we need to go do surgery right now. And again, I'm in shock, signing all the liabilities like you against blood transfusion, like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. So off they go, wheeling my seven-week-old baby into the operating room. And my husband is in West Virginia. I'm texting him, like our son just went to surgery, texting friends and family, everybody just start praying. Like, I don't know what is going on. Four hours later, surgeon comes back and he tells me, you know, everything went well clinically. We were able to drain the blood, fix the fracture. And my first question is, is he okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? And the doctor said, we really don't know, you know, due to his young age, we don't even know whether he's going to survive the next 48 hours. Like, okay, like he's in a medically induced coma right now due to all the seizures he started having after the surgery, probably due to the irritation of the blood coming into contact with the brain, but I can take you upstairs. He's stable. So I go to that PICU, you know, if you've ever been in those intensive care units, you know, everything's made of glass. 
it's cold, you hear all the machines beeping. And I just see my baby, seemingly lifeless baby, no gauze wrapped all over his head, got tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine. And I hold that little hand and I remember praying and I'm saying, God, I don't care if I have to take you know, the rest of my life to take care of my son, I will. Just don't take him away from me. And in that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, he's mine. I gave him to you. Nobody's going to take him away from you. I breathe a sigh of relief at that moment. And I say, God, you're right. He is yours. There is no better place for him to be than in your hands right now. So I had to surrender my son's life to God at that point. And, you know, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you know, the Bible verse, the peace that surpasses all understanding was with me in that room. I look at my mom was there with my son. Like I'm obviously not leaving the hospital, call my friend, tell her to come pick them up and told my son, you know, you're going to sleep at grandma's house today. Happy as a doodle bug, going to get away with everything. So they leave. And a couple hours later, a man in a uniform and a lady with a clipboard knocks on the door. And I look up, looks like a police officer. And he says, Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? I said, yeah. What happened to your son? was worse than getting struck in the head by a bullet. Okay, like we wanna help you. Will you help us figure out how this happened to your son? So at this point, I'm like, okay, no, you're asking me for help. Obviously, don't think it was me. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously gonna ask about the nanny. So I sit down, tell them the whole saga from four o'clock in the morning. Police officer is very casual, you know, asking me, why did you wait so long to bring him to the hospital? Because I didn't know what was wrong with him. She told me he was gassy. Why didn't you call 911? Because I didn't know. Right. And the social worker, do you have any other children? I do. Where are they? What are their names? I tell her, like, is it okay if we go see him? At this point, it's about nine o'clock at night. And I tell her, well, he's probably asleep by now. She said, we're not going to wake him. We just want to make sure he's okay. So again, me thinking they're here to help me. I have nothing to hide call my mom, tell her the social worker's on her way. So she leaves at that point. Police officer asked me if I wait for the detectives, that they're on their way as well. My husband comes straight from the airport to the hospital. He mm-hmm. takes my husband to one room, puts me in another room. So in hindsight, we can kind of see what's going on. Yeah. But when I was there, I mean, I had absolutely no idea that this was actually a child abuse investigation mm-hmm. and that I was prime suspect number one at that point. Mm-hmm. So the detectives interview me till about two o'clock in the morning. I remember I'd been up since four the previous day. It's now two o'clock the next day. And I tell them, you know, I really need to sleep. We can continue this later if you would like. They were very nice to me, gave me their business cards. I went to sleep, wake up 10 o'clock in the morning. My husband is just staring at me, this blank stare on his face. And my first instinct, you know, look at the baby, like he's alive. He's okay. What, what happened? And he looks at me and says, they took David. David is my 20 month old son at the time. Like, what do you mean they took David? Who, where? Like, we don't know. They showed up at your mom's house two o'clock in the morning last night. And I'm like, they lied to me. Like they said they weren't even gonna wake him up. So I call my mom and my mom and my my poor mom, like what what happened? Like they showed up two o'clock in the morning with three police cars. They come in, they open the refrigerator, see if there was food, walk through the house, mm. ask me where David was. I showed them, the, she flipped on the light. He wakes up, happy, thinks it's time to play. 
And she asked me to undress him. I did. She looked over him and she tells me we're going to take him. And my mom says, no, you're not. And social worker says, well, if you don't give him to us, we're going to arrest you. And the police officers are all there. They don't say anything. And my mom's like, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And the social worker, no, he's going to go to foster care. And you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. So what are we to do at this point? It's two o'clock in the morning. My dad is calling lawyers. Of course, nobody answers the phone. Mm -hmm. My son is noticing all the commotion and my mom just gives him to the social worker, buckles him in, Mm -hmm. kicking and screaming, and they just drive off in the middle of the night, not telling us anything. So we're here the next day. My husband is calling social services. They won't answer. And I get on the phone, start calling the lawyers, called about 10 lawyers until I found one that would actually speak to me and look at the case, went to his office and I get there. I'm like, okay, where's my son and where do I go get him? And he looks at me, he's like, sit down. You have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what, what happened? I didn't do this. Like, oh, I believe you. doesn't matter. Like, what do you mean? doesn't matter. What happened constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? And he's like, this is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. Wow. And I'm like, what other law is there? <laughs> and he says, they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest of the child. I'm like, how is it in the best interest of my child to pick him up at two o'clock in the morning? And he just cuts me off right there. You know, he looks like the godfather, this big Italian burly guy. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he's like, you have no idea what you're in for. What happened to your son was criminal. You are mm-hmm. facing 15 years in jail and a hundred thousand dollar bail if they decide to charge you. Mm. I didn't do this. He's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If I go into that courtroom and I ask the judge to give the kids back to you, social services is going to pull up that criminal investigation. They're going to show it to the judge. They're going to say you're putting the children at risk and the siblings at risk by giving them back to their mom. Your saving grace is that your husband was out of town when this happened. So legally speaking, he wasn't even at the crime scene. We're going to ask the judge to give sole custody to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care because if they go to foster care, they're under two years old, nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. And they will make it last longer than six months. And I'm just, I'm floored. I'm like, what country am I living in? What, what is this? And then again, what choice did I have at that point? Right. I'm like, okay, yes. Give them to their father. I don't care what they do to me. Leave my kids alone. So he tells me, you know, go home, get as many character letters as you can. I want you to enroll in child abuse class, a parenting class and individual counseling. I want you to call Fred, my private investigator. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I mean, it was like setting up for a plea bargain, basically. <laughs> mm-hmm. all right. So I did all that. And I go to the courtroom 72 hours later. I'm thinking it's going to be at least, you know, like Judge Judy, where the judge asked, you know, what happened here? What happened there? What happened here? Make a decision and, to move on. Yeah. And yeah. we get there. The social workers aren't there. The detectives aren't there. The police officers aren't there. The nanny is not there. The only person on trial is me and a bunch of lawyers, right? The children's court appointed lawyers, social services, lawyers, our counsel, my husband and I had to get separate counsel and I'm waiting for the judge. You know, when is he going to ask me what happened? And at no point did I ever get to say one word in that courtroom. 
Next thing I hear my name, this is Bruno, you have any objections? Like objections, what? To the children being placed with their father. No. Goes around the whole room, any objections? No objections, okay. Children will go to their father. This is Bruno, you have 24 hours to vacate your home. A caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. Court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. Court is adjourned. And I walk out of there, you know, with my mom crying, like not believing this is actually happening. You know, my lawyer looks at me like I told you. I'm like, I know, but this is crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. Mm. So I go home that day, pick up all my stuff, give them to my neighbor who going to hold them at his house. We had no idea how long this was going to last. And I asked my lawyer, where the heck am I supposed to go now? Right. I'm an only child. My whole family's in Brazil. Won't let me live with my mom because she was with my son when he was seized. I couldn't go to my house. Like, where am I supposed to go? As well, as long as your son is in the hospital, you could stay there. It's a monitored facility. They can't kick you out. Mm. Like, okay. So I went to go sleep at the hospital. Two days later, my pastor's wife is at the hospital and she comes to pray for my son to pray for our family, pray for the situation. And she looks at me and she says, I've been praying and God told me you're coming home with me. Mm. And I've known, you know, these pastors for about four years, high by on Sundays, but we weren't necessarily intimate friends. You know, she just basically invited a stranger to her house and I couldn't have asked for a better friend at that point. Mm. You know, cried with me, prayed with me, laughed with me, did everything with me. And I mean, it was, it was crazy. Like I couldn't, I got seven hours a week of monitored visitation with both my sons. Wow. And my son, you know, David, when they took him and we didn't know where he was, he was at the county children's shelter, like the homeless shelter, basically, where he spent 48 hours. And when I saw him, he was a zombie. Right. I mean, he would look at me. He wouldn't even come near me. Sort of like, you know, why did you abandon me? Like, can I trust you? Right. And I sit down. I start talking to him. You know, he starts opening up. And then the social worker tells me your time is up. And I have to get up. And my son is clinging to my leg, you know, screaming, no, mommy, no, mommy. And I just have to turn around. And, you know, I'm crying like I'm three years old myself. And I'm like, God, what, like, why, (laughs) what is going on? Right. And why is this happening? I don't know why this is happening, but I had to trust God. I had to trust my faith. You know, I knew there was a purpose in this somewhere. There was a purpose for this. And in going to that child abuse class, I'm thinking I'm going to be in there with a bunch of domestic violence, alcoholics, you know, tattooed, pierced up people. And when I get there, everybody's in the same boat that I am. Mm. And I'm hearing the stories and I'm telling my stories and they're completing my sentences. Like, oh, let me guess. Dr. Wong. Like, yeah. Like, oh, non-accidental blunt force trauma. Yeah. Oh, this judge. Oh, this. I'm like, like, you know about this? This is normal? This happens regularly? And Mm. they're like, oh, yeah, we know. We know these people. And I'm like, why? Like, why are they doing this? And, you know, Dr. Google, I start researching and the Adoptions and Safe Families Act comes up. Right. It was a bill signed by Bill Clinton in 1993, 
which basically gives the state's federal money for every child that is placed in foster care. The state gets anywhere from $2,000 to $6,000 per child per month. So when I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, so the incentive here is to remove the children, Mm -hmm. right? Right. The states get money for it. And if there isn't enough children in the system, then the funding gets cut. Then there's going to be layoffs. There's going to be cutbacks, you know, in the funding and the agency's funding. And, you know, then I remembered when they took my son, they wouldn't release him to me or to my husband. They released him to my mom because my mom was a public school teacher. She was already fingerprinted, mandated reporter in the system. Mm -hmm. And they asked my mom if she would adopt my sons before I even had the hearing. Wow. And you're going through this at this time and you got to be like, this is not real. How long did that process go on before? And you wrote all this in your book, Fractured Hope. I want people to get that book. Folks, get that book because this story is is just like gripping. So, Rachel, you're there in that window. How long did that go on in this whole problem here? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, on the 40th day, I had been kicked out of the house for 40 days and 40 nights. On the 40th day, we had a hearing. And my lawyer tells me, don't even bother coming to to court today. The status of the investigation hasn't changed. The criminal investigation is still open. So don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. I tell my husband, like, I don't care what he says, we're gone. Go to the courtroom and wait. About an hour and a half later, my attorney calls me. Where are you? I'm at the courthouse. I go, okay, I'm on my way. Might be able to do something today. Hangs up on me. I'm like, okay. Start texting everybody. Pray. I don't know what's going to happen. Something's going to happen. He walks down the hallway. I go give him a hug. He pushes me away. He's like, don't, make, but don't hug me. I can't make you any promises. I'm like, okay. Goes into the courtroom comes back with a bunch of papers, initial this, sign this, initial this. Like, I don't even know what I'm signing, what I'm initialing. I'm just trusting God at that point. About three hours later go by. He comes back with a stack of papers, about 700 pages. He says, if you're willing to sign this, the way it's written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. Just the timeline of events, the social workers narratives, the medical records, they will let you go home today. So at that point, if they told me to cut off my leg, I would have done it. Right. Wow. I just wanted to be with my children at that point. And I sign it. And he tells me I've been doing this for 23 years. And I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. You definitely have a higher power working for you. Mm. And amen. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so I went home that day after the 40 days. And the case was open, remained open for six months where the social worker would come to our house every month for those six months. And it was her recommendation that the case be closed after the six months were up. So the case was closed. The criminal investigation was closed, but I just had this fire in my butt. Like I cannot be quiet. No witnessing what I witnessed in that child abuse class, hearing the parents' stories, you know, the heartbreak and these children and what happened to my son, what happened. I mean, I couldn't imagine. You know, not, I mean, out of those 20 of us in that child abuse class, I believe three of us got our kids back. Rachel, looking back on this, Mm -hmm. were you angry? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I, I don't know. I say I was more in shock. I was really in shock and betrayal. I think I was hurt. You know, I think it really started like with the police officers and the detectives. Like you told me you were there to help me. 
and you turn around and I read the court reports and you're telling the court that the mom is not exhibiting the normal behaviors of a grieving mother. The narrative does not match this. Never investigated the nanny. Never. They went to her house once after they had already seized my children. And she, her one-year-old daughter at the time had a black eye. The social worker asked her, why does your daughter have a black eye? She, said wow. she fell off the bed when she was sleeping. Wow. And they simply believed her and didn't believe me. Did you ever find out what happened to your son? Nope. To this day, we don't know. You know, the child abuse experts said it was non-accidental blunt force trauma. And we did have our own, you know, investigators, physicians do look at mm -hmm. the analysis. And, you know, they all told us it did not look good. Yeah. And I can't imagine, you know, how, what would you do to a seven week old baby? You know, you being a mother yourself, I really can't imagine. Any word from the nanny? No, I called her when I went to the hospital and my son was in the operating room. Mm -hmm. I called her then, you know, and I asked her, remember all that fussiness this morning? And she's like, yeah, like, well, I'm in the hospital now. He's having brain surgery. Like, did anything happen last night? And she said, no. I just, you know, he was really gassy. Nothing happened. And I just, I don't know. I think at that point, I still hadn't processed the word fracture. You know, that like the bone was actually broken. Right. To me, like it was a newborn. It's not completely formed yet. The cranium isn't completely formed yet. So I'm like, did one of those flaps pop open? You know, was the bleeding an aneurysm? You know, I had a bunch of different theories. I never would have thought somebody purposely did this. When you think about that, did, did she ever have any more contact with you after that at all or just disappear? I was told to not have any contact with her, right? My Got lawyer it. told me, you tell her her services are no longer needed and you don't talk to her anymore. Got it. Have you, this is a hard one. I mean, people need to really get their arms around this. Have you forgiven her and even the law enforcement officers? And if so, how? I did forgive them. You know, I had to forgive them pretty quickly. I remember my husband was really upset. You know, my husband was really mad. He was mad and angry and understandably, you know, but after the way I saw they, what they did to my children, like I wouldn't wish that on anybody, right? Not even her, right? So in a way I was kind of like, I, I, I couldn't, I don't want her to go through this, right? I don't want law enforcement to end up at her house. I don't want her, I don't want her children to go through this, you know? So the empathy, I guess, and just that heartbreak of my own personal life changed my mindset, right? Changed my perspective and, you know, just obeying the Bible, you know, and what I've been taught that we are to forgive. We are sinners, you know, God forgave me. I'm no better than she is. I'm no better than anybody else. I'm a sinner just like she is. So I did have to forgive. And I remember having this conversation with my three-year-old son mm -hmm. who rejected me for probably about a year, you know, after all this happened. And one day we were in a power struggle, right? He was fighting with me, didn't want to do something. And I remember just going to the bathroom and crying. And I'm like, God, I can't do this. Right. He kept telling me, I don't want you, mommy. I don't want you. And I'm like, the words hurt. Right. I'm building a wall against my three-year-old son. I can't do this. And, you know, again, the Holy Spirit to me, like, yes, I know it hurts, but you're the adult in the situation. 
Mm. Right? You put on your big girl panties and go talk to him. I'm like, is it too young to talk to him? Like he doesn't understand. I'm like, yes, he does. Go talk to him. So I sat down with him. And when I was kicked out of the house, you know, my husband and I owned our own business at that point. Mm-hmm. He couldn't run the business and take care of these two kids. So my cousin and my aunt from Brazil are the ones who came over, flew over here and decided to stay with them and take care of them. So I asked my son, do you remember when your auntie came to take care of you? And first words out of his mouth, why did you leave? And I'm like, okay, so he knows. So I sat down with him. I showed the pictures of his brother. Like, look, this is what happened to Lucas. And they thought that mommy did this. And he looks at me. You never heard us, mommy. Like, I know. But they thought that I did. You know, they just made a really bad choice, David. They were doing their job, but they made a really bad choice. But we have to forgive them. And he's like, is she in jail? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know. She's in God's hands. You know, I don't know where she is, but God is going to deal with her. But we have to forgive her. We have to forgive the police officers. We have to forgive the doctors. We have to forgive the detectives. We have to forgive the social workers. We have to forgive everybody. But forgiveness doesn't mean that we're not going to fight. Okay, we're not going to let them get away with this. And he looked at me, you're going to hit them, mommy? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to hit them with a pile of papers. <laughs> and it was a complete 180 from that point on with my son. He just needed to know that he wasn't abandoned, right? And that I loved him, that his father loved him. None of this was his fault. None of this was our choice. And we sued them. We sued Orange County, LA County, Sheriff's Department, Children's Hospitals, and all the individuals associated. And when I got the petition, I showed him to my three-year-old son, like, here, this is how we're going to fight them. Signed it in front of him. He put it inside the envelope, sealed it. We prayed for it. So, you know, he became part of the story, right? He had closure and he knew what was going on. So I think that whole thing was healing for all of us. Right. And we did sign the petition. We sued them. We went through all the depositions. I mean, my book fractured hope goes into detail about everything that was discovered during this. I mean, it's, it's mind boggling. (laughs) Uh, We settled in December of 2018. We were supposed to go to trial in June of 2019, but we settled for Mm 1.49 and, you know, Again, this wasn't for the money. There's no amount of money they could ever repay me for what they took away from me. But it did give us a clean slate. You know, we probably $250,000 in debt at this point. Mm -hmm. From the beginning till now, you know, we lost our business. A lot of things happened. But, you know, it gave us a clean slate. And with that money, we moved. We're in Tennessee now. Mm. We bought new house and the children are well. Thank God, you know, my seven week old son is now six years old and he has no brain damage. He went through all his milestones, developmental milestones. He's in first grade. He can read, he can write, he can dance. (laughs) I mean, he's a miracle baby. You know, there's no way that I can't look at those children every day and not be grateful. Praise the Lord. I love that. And um, I want people to get your book and I wanted them to hear from you, hear your heart. There's a lot of people in the world, Rachel, I think you'd agree with me. They've been hurt, not just by the system, but been hurt by other people. 
you know, I was thinking about the name of the book, Fractured Hope. I, I was gripped by another concept, Fractured Trust. And you had Fractured Trust. Yeah. But because you had fractured trust, God made that fracture into hope again. And I think that's very powerful. So I really want to thank you for uh, sharing your story with us. And um, I hope that people really will embrace this and get a good download of uh, some of the grace that you've exhibited, even telling your story. Um, where can they get your book, Fractured Hope? You can go to my website www.rachelbruno.com mm -hmm. and there's a form that you can fill out with your email address because we're just doing pre-orders right now mm -hmm. so when it's ready and published and printed you will be the first ones to know <laughs> well folks i'm going to encourage you right now go to um, rachelbruno.com get on that get the pre-order done and be one of the first to not just get the book but I'm going to ask you to digest the book and share the book, share the story, share this podcast, share this story with people, because this is the world we live in right now. I think you agree with Rachel is there's a lot of forgiveness that needs to be had. Um, lots of anger, lots of undealt with trauma and bitterness that is there. And it's, it hurts you as a human being. I, I imagine that you, probably have imagined yourself being in a different place today had you not forgiven, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I, I am grateful to God right now that I know you. You are um, somebody that stood up against um, the system and you kept your head about you, you've glorified God the whole way. So I'm grateful that you got somewhat of um, at least financial Mm -hmm. blessing back to get you out of debt but i know no one takes away the wounds that are there but right. you you've allowed your scars to become stars so yeah. that's <laughs> interesting um yeah but fractured hope folks i want you to get the book go to rachelbruno.com we've got all of that in the show notes here um rachel how do people contact you how can they stay in touch with you well i have my website and i'm also on instagram at rachelbrunospeaks I'm also on Facebook, Rachel Bruno Speaks. And yeah, shoot me messages. And, you know, if you're going through this yourself, you no, know, I'm not a lawyer yet, <laughs> but I can give you my experience. You know, if you just need somebody to vent to, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you need somebody to cry with, mm. you know, because yes, I did cry and it's okay to cry. You know, even the Bible talks about when you don't know what to pray. The spirit intercedes on your behalf through our groans, right? Through groaning. <laughs> so I'm here. Wow. Instagram, Rachel Bruno, Rachel Bruno Speaks. Facebook, Rachel Bruno Speaks. I'm going to go there right now myself, and I'm going to join, connect with you in both of those myself right now. And I encourage everybody to do the same thing, too, because we need to link our arms with people, even though we might not have admitted the same things. We've all been through wounds. We've all been through hurts, we've all been through trauma, and that can take something out of us, or I encourage you folks to be like Rachel and allow to put something in you. The opportunity to forgive, just like our Lord and Savior forgave us. And Rachel, I uh, commend you, I honor you, and I'm grateful uh, that you would take some time to join us today. And um, I can't wait to you know, digest the book 
and all of this and um, just follow you to see what God does in the next best chapter of your life, maybe future books, maybe future counsel for people. I love that. So um, thank you, Rachel. Any uh, last words of encouragement before we sign off for today? No, thank you so much for the opportunity, you know, and that there is hope. God can restore. God will restore. Amen. Well said. Well, folks, there you have it. Rachel Bruno, her new book, Fractured Hope. Visit her website, rachelbruno.com. Go to Instagram and Facebook, Rachel Bruno Speaks, both, and connect with her there. Rachel, the Lord bless you. Thank you for having us. And uh, folks, connect with her. Look forward to seeing you next time on Hope and Health. Bye for now. Doctors Mark and Michelle Sherwood and their clinic can help you find the hope and health you were created to enjoy. Go to Sherwood.tv for clear, proven ways you can be healthier. Subscribe at Sherwood.tv.